go ahead and take a seat. And as you do, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as you do, think about the word evangelism for a moment. The word evangelism, it's a, it's a funny little word, isn't it? It's a, it's a word that without question elicits a wide array of, of thoughts, emotions, even understanding, maybe a, a great deal of confusion at times. All, all of these things, the understanding, the lack thereof, the emotions, all have been shaped by our past experiences, our, our past exposures, uh, or maybe the lack thereof. And, I, and I, I'd, I'd be remiss to say, I, I, I truly would love to know where everybody kind of comes from with their understandings of evangelism. You know, a room this size with all of us coming from so many different backgrounds, it would be curious to know kind of where those fears lie, where, where understanding exists or, or doesn't, and to see what everyone thinks about. I mean, when I say the word like evangelism, I'd be curious to know how many people think of somebody like Billy Graham. <laughs> I'd like to also be curious to know how many people are like, who's Billy Graham? <laughs> we, we, we say that, and some of you are like, how could that be? How could somebody not know who Billy Graham is? Well, years have passed, and the cultural culture has changed. Maybe you think about how many of us think of somebody just coming and knocking on a door and thinking, oh, that's what evangelism is, and somebody knocking on your door, interrupting your dinner, interrupting your nap, and going through an awkward conversation. I mean, the list could go on of any number of things that we may think evangelism is or, or isn't. Some of you, just being honest, you may think, you know, that is really scary. <laughs> it is a frightening thing to think about what evangelism is. But again, we could continue on, but what I hope to do today is to provide a, a, a baseline understanding that we can all begin to build from. A baseline understanding of, for one, for how evangelism is defined. Like what is it to begin with? And, and then from there, um, looking at some of the, the motives behind our evangelism. So what we're not doing today is looking at how we do it. But we're looking at the, the, the meaning and the motivation. That, that's kind of where our focus is. And again, not looking at the how. For those of you who have been in the 9 o'clock class over the last five weeks, we've looked at the how together over that period of time. But today we want to focus on the, on the why. We want to really kind of zero in on the, the heart and the motivating factor. But before we do that, I want to look at a definition. A definition that will appear on the screen if it is not already. And it's a definition that I've held to since I was in seminary in my personal evangelism class in seminary. Basically, it reads, as you can see, evangelism is the compassionate sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people in the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing them to Christ as Savior and Lord that they, in turn, might share him with others. It's basic, but yet a very encompassing definition. And we've broken it down over the last several weeks in, in the 9 o'clock class, but it's, it's compassionate. Compassionate. 
It's, it's not like holding somebody hostage and beating them upside the head with the gospel. <laughs> That's not what we're doing. It's compassion. It's not arguing. It's compassion. Something we need a whole lot more of in our society today. It's listening. It's engaging. It's asking good questions. But it's sharing. It's sharing, which is either a verbal or nonverbal means of communicating what? The good news of Jesus Christ. That's our message. It's the only message that we have. It may seem foolishness to the world of which we're preaching it to, but it is the only message we have, and it is the, the power and the wisdom of God. Who are we sharing it with? Lost people. Now, we don't know who these individuals are. In general, we can have a good idea, but we're sharing it with lost people. Am I still on? There we <laughs> we just lost my connection. And we're doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of what? Of bringing them to Christ as Savior and Lord. We're not doing this in our own power. We're not doing this in our own strength. We're doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit. But for the purpose of seeing them come to faith in Christ as Savior and Lord of their life, that they, that, that is a very big word, that they may in turn share him with others, which requires us teaching them everything Christ commanded so that they can go and do likewise. It's not just say a simple prayer and then go live your life however you want to live it. It's a, it's a life of discipleship, of faithfulness to follow in Christ. And so, in a nutshell, that's what evangelism is by definition. But the question I really want to focus on today is, is why? Like, the motivation behind compassionately sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people. Like, why would anyone risk the potential persecution, the, the ostracizing, the, the ridicule? Injection from family, friends, just culture in, in general to evangelize. Why would somebody do this? Why would some pack up everything they own, sell a good portion of it, move to another part of the country or the world to intentionally share the gospel with lost people? Why would somebody do something like that? Like what is the motivation? Well, that's where we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul's letter here to the church in Corinth, a, a church that historical context tells us has, has been in a continued state of conflict. A conflict that essentially stemmed from those who opposed Paul as the apostle. Persecutors of Paul who were denying the fact that he was an apostle. They're like, oh, no, he's not. They're saying that he, he shouldn't be believed that he shouldn't be trusted because he's not really an apostle. That's what his opponents are saying. And yet they're, they're saying it to a people who have loved Paul, who have trusted Paul. He is the one who, for the vast majority of them, who introduced them to Christ. He first preached Christ to them, helped start the church in Corinth, and now they've got people telling them, hey, you can't trust Paul. 
Don't trust a word that's coming out of his mouth. He's not a real apostle. Don't believe what he's saying. Imagine that tension, right? If you can imagine all the division and the confusion that that was causing within the church. Some people may be hearing this and feeling betrayed. Like, I really trusted Paul because they're believing a false teaching. And others doing what? They're coming to bat for Paul. And you've got this division that's taking place. But you know what their argument was to, for why Paul couldn't be trusted? For why Paul could not be considered an apostle? Because of his suffering. Because of his suffering. See, they said he couldn't be considered a true apostle because of the suffering he was experiencing for the gospel he was preaching. The idea being that no real apostle of Christ, that no one who really was filled with the Spirit of God would suffer like he suffered for proclaiming the gospel. This cannot be true. Church, that sounds like something today, does it not? It sounds like what is called today the, the prosperity gospel, which often teaches that one's suffering is the result of a lack of faith. And so then the subsequent message is, if, if you're suffering, if you're going through this trial, then you need to just have more faith, and then everything will be okay. And everything's not okay, and then what's the message? You just need to have more faith. That's a false gospel. Been around for centuries. So as you can imagine, all this is causing great division within the church and, and ultimately great harm to the gospel witness of the church because that's what division and controversy within the church do. They take the focus off of Christ and the gospel, which is exactly what the enemy wants. So what does Paul do in response? He argues compassionately, but firmly, he argues in his defense, arguing that his weakness, his suffering as an apostle is the very means that God is using to make Christ known to the world. God using that which the world sees as foolish and weak to shame those who the world sees as wise. But all this, all this is why Paul is so personal and so passionate in his letter to the church in, in Corinth. He wants to set the record straight. And, and what I want to do this morning is, is look at Paul's words to the church in, in Corinth, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, and consider the motivation behind his desire to press on proclaiming Christ, even in the midst of all of his suffering. Like, why would he do this? And then through, his, then through understanding his motivation, gain a better grasp of, of what a healthy motivation for evangelism is for us. And we're going to do this through 10 short points. <laughs> and some of you are like, say what? <laughs> I promise, 10 short points. The first one, the longest of them all, all right? So when we get there, I get, Okay, we've made it to the first time. But ten short points, beginning with number one. Christians evangelize because of an eternal perspective. 
chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What's he comparing and contrasting here? Well, the, the temporal and the eternal, right? He's telling us in, in verse 17, this light momentary affliction, where he's referring to persecution, suffering, the, what he's experiencing in this life is preparing us an eternal weight of glory. Paul attempting to teach the church in Corinth and his opponents and us that our suffering is not without purpose. Our trials are not without purpose. It's, it's a means of preparing. It's a means of training. It's a means of equipping. Verse 18, as we, that is we who are suffering, look not to the things that are seen, that is the things in this life that we can see and touch and hold and grab, but to the things that are unseen, which are what? The things that are going to come in the next life. Or the, the purposes of God in this life that we may not be able to see. Don't understand. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if the tent, I love the imagery here of a tent, a transient temporary structure, no better picture than a, a tent, a tent here, reference to our bodies, if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul's telling the church in Corinth, if we are in Christ, and when, not if, but when our bodies die, by whatever means, whether it's old age, disease, tragedy, persecution, we have a home not made with hands, awaiting us this present world this present body as it presently is with all of its aches and all of its pains and all of its problems it is not that home praise the lord right as we read in verse six we know that while we are at home in the body we are away from the lord and so we, we have right now a season, a season of already and a season of not yet. So already in Christ, already secured in his promises if we are in Christ. It's solidified, it's done, but we're not yet with him, are we? Not yet freed from the, the burden of, of sin, not freed from the burdens of this world. So we do what? We look forward. We look forward with anticipation. We look forward with hope to that which we cannot see. And that requires what? Faith. 
It requires a lot of faith. But storms in life arise, don't they? And those storms can be difficult. You may be going through that right now. They bring with them so many unanswered questions and so many whys, so many hows. And we're tempted in these storms to, to look to what we can see for our security, aren't we? Look to what we can see for our answers. But when we process the imagery here of what Paul's teaching and the reality of our earthly bodies and all of our stuff and the things that we look to in this world for our security, what of it will last through the storm of God's judgment? What's going to last? None of it. None of it. It's like taking shelter in an actual tent on the beach with an oncoming Category 5 hurricane. It's not going to last. There's no chance of it lasting. It's gone. That's the point Paul's making with this text. We who are in Christ are a people of faith. Our hope is not in our tents, but in that which we don't see. Our hope isn't that which you don't see. Our hope is rooted in God's promises, which are secure. Therefore, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk, we live with the not yet of eternity in mind all the time. Doing today, working today for that which will not only matter today, but will matter 10,000 years from now. Living life today with eternity in mind, knowing, as we said in our series through Ecclesiastes, only which is done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. Which should be a strong motivating factor behind our evangelism. Working, striving, praying for that which is eternal, not temporary. Number two, Christians evangelize because of a deep desire to please God. Look with me at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now, as we discussed again through Ecclesiastes, our desire to please him shouldn't stem from, from an attempt to earn God's favor. It's not possible. But to do what will bring God great delight to do what will, will make his heart happy and this includes every avenue of our life not not just evangelism but in everything we do doing everything we do with a desire to please God and how is it that we do this by loving God and keeping his commandments he's not overly complicated with the explanation throughout scripture word is overly like difficult in our application and understanding of it at times so how do, how do we continue on? Pertain, how does this pertain to evangelism? What are his commands there? Well, in one sense, it's very simple. Go make disciples of all nations. To proclaim the good news of the gospel to all people. To teach them how to follow God and what it means to love him. Teach him of the God that we love. Why? Because the heart of our God desires for people all over the world to be saved. 
This pleases him. And since this pleases our God, it should please us as well. And we need to ask ourselves and be honest with our answer. Does this please us as well? Because we will spend our life doing that which brings us the greatest delight. Right? We're going to pursue and we're going to go after that which is going to bring us the greatest delight. So my prayer this morning for us is that what delights God will delight us. And even beyond that, I'm praying that God will be our greatest delight as a church and as a people. Number three, Christians evangelize because we know we will be judged. You know, I know this point makes some uncomfortable. I want to shy away from any talk about being judged. It's an uncomfortable topic. I get it. But look with me at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, of course, many want to shy away from talking about being judged only to focus on God's grace. Don't want to talk about obedience. Just want to talk about grace. But the text is clear. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So then, of course, the question is, what does this mean? And it means all people will stand before Christ to be judged. There is no exception. All people will stand before Christ to be judged. And for we who are in Christ... We who are trusting in him as our only hope in life and in death, we will be judged righteous without sin. How? How's that possible? Because God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's through our faith in Christ and his atoning work alone that there is no condemnation for we who are in Christ. The Bible is very clear. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But while salvation is 100% the work of God's grace, if we are truly in Christ, if we are the righteousness of God, there will be fruit-bearing evidence in how we live our lives. Apple trees put forth apples. Grapevines put forth grapes, and Christians will put forth the fruits of the Spirit. We will obey Christ's commands. Not perfectly, but we will desire to obey Christ's commands. And maybe you're like, okay, Jeremy, I, I get that. But what does that have to do with me being judged? <laughs> Everything. Again, the text telling us that each one, each person may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this could be referring to the rewards we receive for the good we do in Christ, yes. But it's certainly referring to our deeds that in turn provide the, the evidence for the validity or the genuineness of our faith. As James tells us, faith without works is, is dead. It doesn't exist. It's not real. 
no good works, no, no faithful obedience, desiring for faithful obedience. Not, not only are there no rewards, but there's no saving faith. But church, I can't stress this enough that these good works, they don't come from some begrudging obligation to, to follow and obey Christ. They're not like, okay, I've got to go tell people about Jesus. Okay, I've, I've got to, to be kind and compassionate, put forth fruits of the Spirit. No. They come from a deep desire to please God and tell others of His marvelous grace. Like we ourselves have been saved. We've been redeemed. We see Christ, our groom, for who He is. And we're like, I want to tell others. I want others to know Christ. Now, can we be scared to death in telling somebody? Absolutely. But we desire to do it. Our desire for them to know Christ outweighing our, our fear not to. And church, we will all stand before God and we will give an account. Number four, Christians evangelize because we fear the Lord. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Again, we talked about the fear of the Lord a great deal throughout our study through Ecclesiastes. So much coming out of Ecclesiastes. And again, for the believer, it's not a fear of an abuser. This is not a fear of an unbenevolent dictator, but rather possessing great reverence for, awe for, respect for one, the one we love so dear and who we desperately desire to, to please. We want to worship him. We long to serve him. We long to please him. But for those who do evil, for those who, who don't believe, who are not faithfully following Christ. The reality is you, they, have every reason to fear God's just judgment. What evidence can you give counter? See, Paul is deeply disturbed by even the thought that someone might think that he has misrepresented the Lord. He can't bear the thought that, that people would, would think he'd be living a life in, in opposition to the gospel and, and contrary to the glory of God. He can't fathom this. It hurts him to think of this, which is why he does not remain silent. And not so much because of his reputation being on the line, though it is, but because he doesn't want the gospel to be maligned. He doesn't want God's name tarnished or misrepresented in any way. He also doesn't want those he loves so desperately, dearly, to, to be deceived. So he seeks to persuade others wants them to to know christ before it's too late and that's what evangelism is a conversation of persuasion a conversation of compassionate but intentional persuasion planting watering persuading pleading and trusting god to give the growth and so i ask can this be said of us? Are we looking to persuade others because of the fear of the Lord? Our desire to please the one we love, yes. And yet to see fellow image bearers of 
of God not succumb to his just judgment. We don't want them to experience this. We want them to know Christ crucified. Number five, Christians evangelize because of our love and concern for others. Verses 12 and 13, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. See, Paul knew that any false accusations against him could have a devastating effect, not only on him, but also on the church. Church could could easily split between those who believed Paul and those who didn't believe Paul. And ultimately, what does a church split harm? The glory of God and the spread of the gospel. It harms the witness of the church. See, Paul understands the importance of the evangelistic witness of the local church. He knows that the health of the local church is essential to her evangelistic witness. An unhealthy church is an unhealthy evangelistic witness. He knows that if a church splits, it can cause great harm to the evangelistic witness of the church in the community and turning some away completely. Think about how many people we all know even within our own families, who have essentially turned away from the church and Christ because of divisions that they have experienced or witnessed within the church. Far too many. Far, far too many. Which is why Paul's defense is motivated less for for his own reputation and what people think of him and more for what people think of Christ in the church. He doesn't want anything to keep the people of Corinth from coming to know Christ. So friends, do we share this love and concern for our neighbors? Not wanting anything to keep them from coming to faith in Christ. Number six. Christians evangelize because of the love of Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Think about this for a moment. The love of Christ controls us. Which means what exactly? Because there's a difference in being compelled by a a love for Christ and being controlled by Christ's love. Let me explain. What and who we love will compel our heart to action, won't it? But who and what we love will compel our heart to action. That's natural. But consider our love for Christ for a moment. Is it a pure love? Is it a love that is without sin? Is it unwavering in its commitment? We'd like it to be, wouldn't we? But if we're being honest, it's not. There are simply days when our love for Christ is stronger than it was on a day before. Can you relate to that? Feeling a a desire compelling to follow and obey stronger on certain days than we do on other days. Same is true of Paul. Same is true of anybody. 
And that's where the love of Christ controlling us is so important and encouraging. As this is best understood as Christ's love for us doing the controlling, not our love for him doing the controlling. See, it wasn't Paul's love for Christ that permeated in Paul's mind when Paul was being stoned. Paul wasn't being stoned and just sitting there and saying, oh, how I love Jesus. At least I don't think that was the case. He loved Jesus, yes. But I don't think he was being stoned and just singing, oh, how I love Jesus. No, it was Christ's love for Paul that permeated Paul's mind. Suffering and remembering the magnitude of Christ's love for him. Oh, that Christ would die for me, a sinner. That's what's on his mind. That's what controlled him. Thinking of Christ's love, not, oh, look, Christ, here's my love for you. It's, this is Christ's love for me, an unwavering, sinless love. Christ's love for him, Christ's love for us. This is how he kept going even in the midst of his suffering. Looking to the love of Christ made known through the cross. And as a result, Paul's like, I press on for Christ. Oh, friends, does the love of Christ control you, compel you? Number seven, Christians evangelize because of the lordship of the resurrected Christ. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Plain and simple, because Jesus rose from the dead, we are under obligation to obey everything that he said. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we are under obligation to obey everything that he said. He is Lord. He is sovereign. As such, evangelism and discipleship and everything else that he commanded are not options to be considered. Rather, they are commands to be obeyed. Number eight, Christians evangelize because of the promise of a life that can be changed. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This being one of those verses falling into the category of most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. (laughs) That if we are in Christ We are not who we once were. In fact, that person no longer exists. We're a child of God and are continually being formed into the likeness of Christ. Are we perfect? By no means. (laughs) But we are being conformed into the image and the likeness of Christ. We are being sanctified. And what that means is if the gospel is powerful enough to save us, it's powerful enough to save anyone. Think about that for a moment. If the gospel is powerful enough to save us, me, it is powerful enough to save anyone, anyone, which means no one is too far gone that they cannot be saved, which is knowledge that should do what for our evangelism? Increase our confidence, increase our motivation, remind us to never, ever, ever, ever give up. Consider who it is in in your life, friend, who right now you're you're committing to never, ever, ever, ever give up on, that you are going to continue to actively share the gospel with. Number nine, 
Christians evangelize because of God's amazing plan to let us be involved. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. An ambassador doing what? Speaking on behalf of someone greater, delivering a message from the king. This is what we get to do. God making his appeal to the nations through us. We implore the lost on behalf of Christ to do what? To be reconciled to God. A message from, from God our, uh, with great urgency and great hope that we, like Paul and Jonah and all so many others throughout Scripture, are called to deliver. We preach Christ crucified knowing that the gospel that we preach is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Oh, what motivation. We compassionately and yet urgently tell all who will listen, and even those who won't, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Oh, church, what a privilege that we have been given. Are we being faithful to the privilege? Do we desire to be? Number 10, Christians evangelize because of the wonder of it all. Because of the wonder of it all. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, what more can we say? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, what more motivation do we need to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ than this? There is none. So as we close today, and the worship team makes their way up, I ask us all to consider the motivation of our heart and the call that he has placed upon we who are in Christ to make his name known and ask, does the love of Christ control us? 